0: One of the sports that I enjoy is trap shooting. Now in trap shooting, you use a shotgun to break these little clay targets about so big around. Uh, Aiming a shotgun to hit a flying target is different than using a rifle with a scope. With a rifle, it's all about focus. Getting the crosshairs of the scope rock solid on your target, controlling your breathing, your heart rate, making minute adjustments for windage and elevation. There's a lot to think about. With a shotgun, it's entirely different. It's about speed and reflexes. And with a shotgun, one of the surest ways to miss your target is to put your eye on the gun's sight. Now, all a shotgun has is a little bead, like a small BB up at the front of the barrel. That's all you have for sighting. Uh, It's just a reference point. Any good shotgun instructor will tell you that if you focus on the bead, you'll miss the target. The most important thing is to focus completely on the target. It's more like a quarterback throwing a pass to a fast moving wide receiver. The quarterback doesn't spend any time looking at the football, his focus is on the receiver. I had a professional trap shooter tell me once that the difference between a champion and a runner up. Often came down to one shooter simply letting his focus move from the target to the bead. I thought of that as I was reading the passage we'll be looking at today. Let's take a look at what Jesus had to say about distracted focus. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to look today at Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Here's what he said. can add a single hour to his span of life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Maybe you spotted the very first word of this section. It's the word, therefore. That automatically tells us that this section flows out of what Jesus just shared prior. Now, we had a little break in our study of the Sermon on the Mount last Sunday with Pastor Britt, who challenged us to see kids globally and locally through God's eyes. And I hope that you've been letting that challenge percolate in your heart. Getting back to Jesus' sermon, you may remember the last section we considered was Jesus' instruction to not allow ourselves to become consumed with hoarding things that time rust and crooks can and will ultimately take away. Instead, he challenged his followers to give their energy to things that have more eternal value, serving God and loving others. He called it laying up treasure in heaven. In this section, he deals with one of the underlying drivers that lures us into misplaced hoarding of things, anxiety, worry. Fear about the future. Uh, Do you know what this is? Uh, It's a fear of the future graph. Uh, It's a stock market graph. It represents money that people have invested in hopes that will allow them to eat well and dress well and live an enjoyable, even a luxurious life. And in trying to invest their money well, people study charts like this, trying to decide what their investment is going to do in the future. They invest hoping that their chosen companies will be profitable and return more money to eat well and dress well and live an enjoyable, even luxurious life. But you know, the future is a wily thing companies that give every indication of future success can hit unexpected problems. And a seeming sure win can turn into a loss. I have something in my library I thought I'd show you. This is a reproduction of the first edition, the 1902 edition, of the Sears and Roebuck catalog. Uh, This is pretty amazing to thumb through. You can buy practically anything in here, from baby clothes to cars, uh, even a kit house that you could have shipped to you and put together way back in 1902. Now, if you had bought $10,000 of stock on May 16, 2003 in Sears and Roebuck, in April twentieth of 2007 it would have been worth $135,600. Now, looking at that trend, it would make sense to buy, buy, buy when it came to Sears and Roebuck stock. Unfortunately, as of June 15th, 2021, your initial 10,000 investment in Sears and Roebuck would have been worth just $275. Now, there are other companies that no one was paying attention to, and sometimes they surprise and handsomely reward early investors by suddenly becoming big winners. When Amazon held its first public offering on May 15, 1997, you could purchase a share for $18. If you'd invested $10,000 that day in a little company that was just selling books online, your investment today would be worth over $12 million. Now, with those kinds of gains and losses at stake, you can see why investors are always trying to figure out, as quickly as they can, what the future prospects are of the companies they invest in. And that means that investors are often very nervous, obsessive, even anxious people. The people Jesus was talking to up on that hillside 2,000 years ago, had nothing comparable to the NASDAQ or the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones Industrial Index, but they were still people who cared about their futures. They too wanted to eat well, dress well, and live an enjoyable, even luxurious life. Jesus wasn't against good food, good clothes, or a good life, but what he was concerned about was people who professed that their ultimate goal, their life target, was God's kingdom, that they might take their eyes off of that target and miss it by focusing and worrying about lesser things. The error, he said, was believing the quality of life consisted in the quality of what they consumed rather than the purpose with which they lived. And having staked their hopes for a good life on what they could obtain, they in turn enslaved their peace of mind to worries over a future which they could not control Matthew 6:25 Therefore I tell you do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing So what was Jesus' solution to restore their sanity bird watching I've decided I must be getting old because I've taken up bird-watching. I now have a bird feeder and I buy special food for finches. Uh, We put up a couple of hummingbird feeders and I dutifully make sure that they stay filled. I built two bird houses and put them in the backyard. I even bought a little bird bath and this cute little solar-powered fountain just so the birdies will have a place to get a drink. I enjoy sitting in the backyard and just watching birds. And this from a guy who spent a large chunk of my youth hunting them. Jesus apparently was also a bird watcher. Here's what he said in Matthew 6, 26. says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Maybe there were some sparrows Flitting about in the bushes up on the hillside, or a bird of prey slowly circling overhead, Jesus points to them and reminds his audience that those creatures do not spend their nights lying awake fretting about their portfolios, and yet their needs are met. The meter of their needs is their Heavenly Father. Jesus then reminds those seated there on the hillside that, A, in God's eyes, they have far more value than birds, and B, if God provides for birds, then it just stands to reason that he'll provide for them. So was Jesus suggesting that we should just paint up an old VW bus, grow our hair long and live out some hedonistic, no-care-about-the-future kind of existence? Well, if you watch birds, you realize that while they may not be consumed with worry, they aren't slackers either. Birds are busy. They hunt for seeds and bugs, they build nests, they migrate sometimes thousands of miles to find their optimum habitats. Jesus isn't saying that we shouldn't plan or prepare for anything. The very fact that we come to God with requests shows that we're aware of things we lack and future possibilities that give us cause for concern. But anxiety moves beyond thoughtful, reasonable preparation into this unhealthy, obsessive, emotional entanglement with future possibilities. Here's what birds don't do. They don't worry that food will be there. I've been enjoying a pair of finches that have been frequenting our bird feeder this summer. These little guys migrate as far south as Mexico, and whether they know it or not, they live with faith. As the time to migrate comes near, these little guys aren't laying awake nights thinking, oh man, I sure hope we can find seeds in Oregon. I wonder how things are looking in California this year. No, they just know that where they go, when they go, where they're supposed to go, what they need will be there because God has so ordered the world that their needs will be provided for. Jesus then brings up another illustration, and that is the worry about longevity. Matthew 6:27. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Note he doesn't say that there isn't anything you can do that will add or subtract from your lifespan. On average, good diet, good rest, and good exercise will result in a longer lifespan than too much hard living and lethargy. However, worrying about your lifespan won't add a second to it. In fact, it may do the opposite. Dr. Helen Lavretsky is a Professor of Psychiatry at the University of California. She co-authored a report for the American Heart Association on the connection between mental and physical health. In a U.S. News report this past May, she said this, Chronic stress is probably the biggest contributor to disorders of aging, such as heart disease, depression, Alzheimer's disease, and other forms of dementia. So, like Jesus said, worrying about your life won't make it last longer or better. In fact, it may have the opposite effect. Finally, Jesus uses an illustration from botany. Maybe there were flowers growing on that hillside and Jesus calls attention to them. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these." And then he uses another of those lesser-greater comparisons like he did with birds. You know, God provides for the birds, and you're worth more than the birds. Immediately after birds, he moves on to talk about the frail and fleeting nature of grass. He says, "...if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Grass was often collected and dried to serve as fast fuel to heat ovens for baking bread, kind of the ancient version of the microwave. Jesus says that if God is pleased to give so much beauty to stove fuel, they can be sure that he can be trusted to ensure his children, who are eternal beings, will be clothed as well. Did you catch his little rebuke, he inserted? Oh, you of little faith. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, commenting on that phrase, recounted a man he once heard who said this. The trouble with many of us Christians is that we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but we do not believe him. We believe that Jesus saves us, but when it comes to living day-to-day and the realities of budgets, savings accounts, investments, and retirement, we don't really believe him when he says he will care for us. We know only too well all the things that could go wrong, and we start bracing ourselves for every potential shortfall and consuming our minds, trying to figure out every scenario. Jesus would say to us, You have a faith, but it is a very little faith. It isn't a faith that encompasses all of your life. Jesus then drives his point home by contrasting two worldviews. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. In ancient Palestine, speaking to his Jewish audience, Jesus uses shorthand to sum up two distinct views of the world. On one side, there was the Jewish worldview that believed there was one God, sovereign over all, who had entered into a covenant relationship to care for his people. On the other side was the worldview held by the broader Gentile culture, a worldview that attributed much of life to fate, And the fickle whims of capricious gods. A world where gods were beings to be placated and manipulated but certainly never trusted. A world where you were basically on your own. Jesus challenges his disciples not to mouth words of faith while living lives of mistrust. He reminds them of what the target is, where their eyes should be focused. Matthew 6:33 Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The world around is constantly encouraging me to keep my eyes focused on my refrigerator and my closet and my bank account. Now, I need food in the refrigerator and some clothes in the closet, and some money in the bank, but if that is where my gaze gets stuck, Jesus says I will miss the target. Focusing on the kingdom of God and His righteousness will redirect my concern from being just well-fed, well-clothed, to having a heart that is well-formed by God's grace, a mind that is well-informed in His ways, and a life well-lived in loving and serving others. Finally, Jesus finishes with this great summary statement, Matthew six thirty four. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful little book, The Weight of Glory, said this. Never in peace or war commit your virtue or your happiness to the future. Happy work is best done by the man who takes his long-term plans somewhat lightly and works from moment to moment as to the Lord. It is only our daily bread that we are encouraged to ask for. The present is the only time in which any duty can be done or any grace received. Let me try to pull this all together by thinking with you a bit more deeply about this issue of anxiety. When we talk about anxiety, what we really are talking about is fear. These past 15 months, I've heard lots of talk about fear. Fear of how or when the pandemic will truly be over. Fear about our economy, fear about the direction of our country, fear about world events and rising tensions, Fear about environmental issues, fear about possible persecutions, maybe even fear that we may be entering into the end times, and with it, the fear that if God doesn't rapture his church first, we might face that time of great tribulation talked about in the book of Revelations. Those are just the big fears that everybody's talking about. We could add a huge list of personal fears that are unique to each of us. Fear about whether or not my retirement savings will be enough to withstand impending inflation. Fear about what the doctors saw in my spouse's x-rays. Fear about my children and grandchildren and what their futures will look like. Fear about careers and aspirations and goals that may not be achievable. I I felt some of those fears myself. I think we could take almost all of those anxiety-producing things and break them down into two basic fears. The fear of bad things happening to me and those I love, and the fear of not attaining things that I desire. When it comes to the fear of bad things happening to me, the unhealthy response, the response of a little faith, is to become consumed with trying to imagine every scenario and attempting to take preventative measures for every eventuality. It's allowing myself to emotionally live with the anticipated reality of things which may never happen. And in letting myself go there, I rob myself and my Lord and others of the focus and energy which I should be giving them today. When it comes to the fear of not attaining things I truly desire, The response of a little faith is to decide that I must have a certain lifestyle or possess certain things before I will deem myself as having worth or consider myself happy. I allow my affections to become consumed with my constant calculations about how to achieve, depressed over the things I've not acquired, insecure over my abilities in comparison with others and consumed with the worry over what I don't have, I fail to employ the things that I've been gifted with to love and serve God with a whole heart. So how do we win over worry? How do we move from people, anxious people of little faith, to calm people of great faith? Let me suggest three avenues of attack in overcoming anxiety. I'm going to try to make this very practical. I'm going to go fast, and you may want to grab paper and pen, and please feel free to pause the video if you want to write things down. The first big way I would say that we begin to fight anxiety is we need to learn to rest well. Resting well begins with prayer as we rest our hearts in our Father's care. The practice of consciously, verbally, turning our worries about the future over to our Heavenly Father. Sometimes even writing our prayers down is a good exercise. It keeps our minds focused, and it helps keep us from slipping into idle worry. You ever find that happening? You you start to pray quietly in your mind, and suddenly you're not praying to the Lord, you're just worrying about stuff? Sometimes writing it down really helps. We also need to learn how to rest our bodies. One of the causes of anxiety attacks is an overactive adrenal system. Adrenaline is this amazing super booster drug God has built into our bodies to give us an extra jolt of energy when we're in danger. Of course, those adrenal glands don't have their own window to the world. They depend entirely on how our minds are perceiving the world. And if our minds are saturated with anxiety and fear, well, the recurring message to those little glands is Give me a jolt, but too many jolts of a good thing is a bad thing. And over time, those overworked little glands don't know how to turn off. And then people experience all sorts of negative effects, shortness of breath, racing heart, feelings of panic, and and more. If you've ever experienced or have known someone who has gone through anxiety attacks, you know they are no laughing matter. Just as an anxious mental state can result in bodies that are stressed and overwhelmed, so too learning how to quiet our minds and refresh our perspective is critical to restoring health physically, mentally, and spiritually. A very simple and yet profound step is to meditate on nature and nature's God. That's where Jesus started, isn't it? He said, Consider the birds. Consider the flowers. Anxiety is nurtured when I become consumed with considering my potential problems. Jesus' counsel is to turn our attention to the abundant evidence all around us of God's provision. I'd like to encourage you to find someplace quiet where you can simply observe nature and let your soul meditate on your Heavenly Father's creation, His provision. It doesn't have to be an exotic location. Burnett and I have a small bench in our backyard and I find just sitting there and enjoying the birds is a great way to help quiet my mind. And while you're sitting there, watching, praying, remind yourself to take a deep breath. I spent 10 years as a chaplain went to a lot of traumatic situations. And one of the things that we were trained to do before we walked into a difficult situation was to just stop and take a few deep breaths. It's bringing my body into alignment with my mind to quiet myself. Along with consciously making yourself slow down, there is learning to cultivate gratitude. Do you know what FOMO is? It's an acronym that stands for the fear of missing out. Today's social media has been engineered to give us a non-stop torrent of news and fads and marketing. Blink at the wrong moment and you might miss the latest breaking viral event. Numerous studies affirm that FOMO, the fear of missing out, is a major source of anxiety among youth and young adults. One of the ways we can fight against that fear is to learn to cultivate gratitude. Gratitude directs my emotions to thankfulness for what I've already received. Rather than being driven by a constant desire for the next thing, I stop and reflect on what I've already been given. An awareness of God's provision in my past encourages confidence in his provision for my future. In terms of learning to rest, here's a very practical thing. Practice Sabbath. The principle of Sabbath, a day of rest, finds its roots in the history of creation, where we're told in Genesis 2 that on the seventh day, God rested. That principle of a day of rest actually became commandment number four of the Ten Commandments. Interesting, isn't it? God had to order his people to rest. In fact, look at the words from Psalm 23. David said, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. That's a promise that only happens if I'm in relationship with the shepherd. But interesting, huh? The shepherd has to make me lie down sometimes. We're not good at resting. In the New Testament, we have the story of Martha and Mary, two sisters who were close friends of Jesus. One day, Jesus and his disciples were at the home of Martha and Mary, and it was getting close to mealtime. Martha was busy doing stuff, making all the preparations to feed a bunch of hungry people. But Mary was caught up in the moment, sitting with the others, just listening to Jesus. Exasperated, Martha finally butts in and asks Jesus to please tell Mary to come and help her in the kitchen. Here's Jesus' response. Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Martha thought Mary wasn't paying attention to all the demands. Jesus says on the contrary, it was Mary who was making an important choice, the choice to be still and listen. Spiritual refreshment requires listening to God's voice. Contentment demands quietness. Resting demands discipline. It is the choice to stop doing things. Here's something I'd like you to ponder. If God has numbered your days, and if regular times of quiet are part of His plan, for the days he has given you, but if your life has no significant regular times of rest and quiet, is it possible you're doing things God has not called you to do, or you're doing them in ways that he has not directed? Do you follow that? If God has numbered your days, And if he's the one who has assigned to you the things to do, and if rest is one of the things he has assigned for us to do, and yet in our lives there is no rest, is it possible it's because that we're either doing things he hasn't called us to do, or we're doing them in ways that he has not directed. Okay, second big key to dealing with anxiety, and that is learning to think well. Anxiety may have physical manifestations, but it is first and foremost a state of mind. So getting the upper hand on anxiety means training our minds to think different. You can find time to rest, but if your thinking doesn't change, quiet time will simply be bonus worry time. Here are three ways I think we can help reshape our thinking. The first is that we modify our expectations. Much anxiety comes from setting or clinging too tightly to expectations and goals with pathways that are governed by things you can't control. Laying up treasure on earth is often our attempt to fortify and fail-proof those expectations. But the demands of fail-proofing either consume our present with excessive preparation for an uncertain future, or they consume our minds with worry over an ever-expanding set of anticipated threats. One of the ways we dial down expectations is to learn the discipline of contentment. Listen to Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper I will not fear what can man do to me. Something else I suggest is that you watch what you watch and listen to. Alarmist news will keep you alarmed. Alarmist friends will do the same. Sometimes you need to minimize your time with those kinds of voices. Great scripture, good literature, and encouraging music. Those are the things that will help to keep you centered. Here's another way we learn to uh, change our thinking, and that is we preach to ourselves. Don't let your worry control your inner conversation. Preach yourself the words of Jesus. He said, do not be anxious. You might also want to interrogate your soul. King David knew how to ask himself hard questions. Here's a question he asked in Psalm 42.5. He said, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Are you anxious? Why? What specifically are you afraid of? Interrogate your soul. Write it down. And then, embrace the worst-case scenario. You know, the Apostle Paul was a man who was faced with a lot of hardship in his life. He knew from experience that the path God led him on might include danger. He even talks at times about his own fear and trembling. But he never seemed to let fear of the future keep him from moving forward. Why? Well, I think we can find it in what he wrote in Philippians 1.21. He said, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I suggested interrogating your soul, writing down exactly what it is that you fear. The next step is to ask yourself, as a child of God, so what? What if the worst thing you could imagine happens? Will your life still be secure in Him? Yes, it will. Some of the most radiant, joy-filled followers of Jesus I've ever known were people who had experienced the very kinds of losses that we most naturally fear. When you can embrace the truth that no matter what happens, you will still be secure in God's love, then you can put a whole bunch of worries to bed. Along with that, repent of faithless, yeah, but patterns of thought. This is what gets many of us into trouble. We listen to Jesus' words about not being anxious and we hear good instruction about how to reorder our lives and our first response is, well, yeah, but. Could I suggest that yeah, but is often simply an excuse to continue living in disobedience? It is sin to take God's clear instructions and push them aside with, yeah, but. That is us saying that our nearsighted, misfocused perspective is somehow superior to that of the God who made all things, including us. If that is you, you may need to begin by repenting of your yeah, buts. And then finally, as you think about the future, as you're tempted to be anxious, um, instead of preparing yourself for the worst, you might want to prepare yourself to be pleasantly surprised. There are as many opportunities for unexpected blessings as there are unfortunate events. A third way that we overcome anxiety is in learning to plan well. We, and let me suggest some ways that we learn to plan well. The first thing I'd say is make clearly defined, time-consuming kingdom commitments in the here and now. Clearly defined, time-consuming kingdom commitments. You see, worry will, concern, will consume your time and energy with future fears and in the process, rob you of present blessings. Jesus said that we should seek first his kingdom. That means choosing to give our time, thought, energy, to things in the here and now that serve Him and love others. More energy spent serving Him now means less energy expended worrying about the future. That may be an important step for some of us coming out of COVID and its social restrictions. We've had lots of time on our hands to worry, and we may have gotten ourselves stuck there. What does God want you to do? Where does he want you to serve? Get involved. Make clear, time-consuming kingdom commitments. And then the second thing, make reasonable preparations for the future. Do you remember Y2K? Right? That when the year 2000 came around, there was a lot of anxiety about what would happen when the clock ticked from 11.59 p.m. December 31st, 1999, to 12 a.m. January 1st, 2000. Uh, some people went to extraordinary lengths, uh, fearing massive computer shutdowns, and, and they started trying to hoard food and fuel in preparation for what some thought might be the end of Western civilization as we knew it. That stuff worried me, too. I mean, what to do? We finally decided to buy a small hand pump that could fasten onto a wellhead at my father-in-law's house. So we figured that way we could at least get fresh water even if the power was out for a long time. Uh, We also bought one large bag of dried beans and another of rice. Not my favorite diet, but we figured if food supplies got disrupted, we could live quite a while on beans and rice. And with those preparations in place, we chose to stop worrying about Y2K. Here's my rule of thumb. Make good preparations for known future needs. Make modest preparations for likely but uncertain needs. And make minimal preparations for extraordinary possibilities next thing I would say is, you may need to prune your decision trees. Decision trees are something those of us with a background in business management have probably encountered, and it's a useful tool. What you do is you identify a problem, and then what the first step is toward solving that problem. Next you want to consider what are the possible outcomes of that first step and how you should respond to each what your second step will be and Of course what the outcome of that might be Now here's the danger Some of us let a decision tree like this grow into a worry shrub we move beyond immediate specific steps to limitless possible outcomes. Uh, Let me give you an example how this might work out. Let's say that the problem I identify is I want to have enough money for retirement. Now, that goal right there needs some thought, doesn't it? Sometimes enough for retirement means how much money do I need to eat the way I want to eat, wear what I want to wear, and live an enjoyable, even luxurious life? Jesus would say that a good retirement plan means asking, what might God want to do with the final chapter of my life that will serve him and love others well? Now, refining that goal may be a whole process in itself of prayer and seeking counsel. So, is financial planning an important part of planning for our golden years? Well, absolutely, as long as we're keeping our focus on a bigger goal so once the goal has been defined then the first step may be to talk to a financial planner and uh, there are going to be a couple possible results either he's going to say that i'm saving enough and if that's true well then problem solved no further action needed or he's going to say you need to save some more if that's what he says well then i have a couple choices i can either reevaluate my budget find a way to live on less or I need to reevaluate my goal and say, is there a way that I can um, change my goal to where it will be within my means? Uh, Do I need to modify my lifestyle? Now, it's the next step. This is where anxiety kicks in. This is where trees turn into shrubs as the variables increase. What if my budget can't handle what I want to save? What if my investments fail? What if my goal isn't attainable? Then what will I do? What will happen to me? My advice is to uh, prune the tree to not more than two branches. That's where you need to stop. That is enough worry for today. You see, mountain folk make the choice day after day to keep their eyes on the target. They have avoided the error of confusing the quality of what they consume with the purpose of their lives. They choose to be concerned first about serving their father. They choose to trust him with the things they cannot control or predict. They practice the disciplines of resting well, thinking well, and planning well. They don't just believe on Jesus, they actually choose to believe him when he says, do not be anxious. That's what mountain folk do.